Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. At 31 years of age, 5 feet 8 inches, 9 stone 1 pound, with a chest measurement of 32 and a half inches, complexion fair, eyes brown and hair brown, staff nurse Cora Barker had been deemed fit to serve. She hadn't been concerned then about what she might be faced with at a military hospital. She'd seen her fair share of misfortune, disease and death. She treated patients with cancers of all kinds and tuberculosis and strokes and poisonings broken bones on those who'd fallen off horses, injuries from attempts at suicide, the symptoms of syphilis and smallpox. She tended women with broken jaws and ribs and men with black eyes from late night fights in Hindley Street. She'd answered the call to serve with patriotism and pride. She had so much more to offer than tending the ill back home when the boys at the front desperately needed medical care. She had left the knitting and the making of flannel garments to women who didn't possess the skills she had. They were doing their part and she would do hers. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Victoria Perman is a best-selling author of historical fiction. Her books include The Three Miss Allens, The Land Girls, The Last of the Bonagilla Girls and The Women's Pages. But today I'm talking with Victoria Perman about her latest novel, The Nurses' War. Victoria Perman, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Now, historical fiction is that special genre of fiction that begins with something true. What was the starting point for you? The starting point for me with The Nurses' War was a couple of things, actually. One was the discovery of some letters. When I was writing the women's pages, my my previous book, I was in the War Memorial in Canberra doing some research. I wanted to look at the letters of prisoners of war, which they have in their archive. And um, I I emailed ahead and they dug them out for me. And I, I sat in a reading room and held these 70, 80-year-old letters in my hands written by prisoners of war. And it was really moving and it really helped me write the women's pages. And, uh, you know, they said things like, Dear Mother, um, don't worry, I'm a prisoner of war of the Japanese, but they're treating me well. Of course, we know that that was all a lie, but it's the kind of thing that young people would write to their parents. That was so moving for me. So while I was doing this, my husband was at a computer with the volunteer and the volunteers are wonderful there. They'll call up service records of family members. And so uh, Stephen um, told the volunteer about some family members, his two uncles, his grandfather, uh, and a great uncle who had served in both wars. In his great uncle Bert's file were some ha- copies of handwritten letters by a young woman from Birmingham. Her name was Jessie Higginson. Now, the family knew that, they, that he had be- become engaged to an English woman, but that's all they knew. And here were her letters asking for information about him. A soldier in England being treated during World War I falls in love with an English woman. Um, and I just thought that had the spark of a, of a story there. I delved further into the great uncle, great uncle Bert, and there was a mention of Harefield Hospital. Now, in the investigation um, about his service, um, someone was spoken to who was being treated at Harefield Hospital. So that led me down the road to what was Harefield Hospital. And I discovered this absolutely fascinating story. It was a manor house bought by two Australian philanthropists and donated to the Australian military during World War I for the length of the war plus six months to be 
a place of rehabilitation and rest for Australian soldiers, but also to be fully staffed by Australians. I'd never heard of this place before. I'd never heard of such a stipulation. The first nurses arrived at that Harefield Hospital in May 1915 um, with matron Ethel Gray, and they turned this manor house into a hospital and they ripped up carpets. They stained the floors with black Japan to turn a reception room into an operating theatre. And of course, a black floor is easier to hide bloodstains than anything else. So um, those two sparks of the idea really took me off on this journey to write The Nurses' War. And then I also delved further into who the philanthropists were, and that's a fascinating story too. Your central character, Cora Barker, there was something quintessentially Australian about her. As a character in The Nurses' War, how does she reflect that? I had such fun writing The Nurses and I wanted them to be reverent. Um, I just loved the idea about an Australian hospital staffed by Australians in the middle of what we might think of stuffy England. You know, so there was a chance to really portray the Australians, you know, with that sort of that typical Australianness, I guess. And I read some fantastic things about the the nurses there. There were there were five nurses at the beginning. Um, the the staff nurse numbers grew to 130 as the war progressed. So there was a curfew for patients at the hospital. And the nurses um, used to sneak them in after hours if they'd been down at the cricketers' arms in Harefield Village for too long. So they had that real sense of um, snubbing their nose at the rules and hierarchy. And um, the thing about the two philanthropists who donated the hospital, Letitia and Charles Billiard-Leak, was they um, had stipulated that officers and soldiers should be treated equally and in the same wards. And that was just another way of the Australian sort of fair go attitude and you know that idea and that that we have that Australia is a classless society it's not but you know we still like to think that we snubbed our nose at all that tradition and, and, and we left that behind we left that class society behind in England and there are there are bits and there's a bit of our you know that Australian character in, in the nurses and I also wanted them to be um, fully rounded women they were they're not angels we do our nurses a huge disservice to think that they were angels because angels don't bleed, they don't hurt, they don't suffer, you know. But I had them as real women who discussed issues of the day, and they're women who arrive in England from a country where they had uh, the full suffrage, um, well, white women did anyway, after Federation, and they go to England where the suffragettes are still, up until the declaration of war, had been blowing up buildings in, in the streets of London. So they were a bit flummoxed by this too, and I wanted to make sure those conversations were in the book. Um, and that, you know, the mother country who they might have looked up to perhaps wasn't as forward thinking as they'd thought. It's quite interesting that you explore exactly that theme, the suffrage movement. 1894, that was when South Australian women gained the right to vote. And interestingly, in, that included Aboriginal women. But what happened at Federation when in 1901, uh, when women were uh, granted the right to vote, Aboriginal people were specifically excluded. So for six or seven years or so, Aboriginal women did have the right to vote in South Australia and then taken away. Do you think that suffrage movement formed part of the motivation for these nurses to leave, you know, what was a very comfortable existence in most cases for a destiny that was probably unknown? In that era, women who were, got married had to quit. I kind of thought that through when that these were women and they weren't 20-year-old nurses. They were in their 30s. They were established women in the workforce who had made a decision or perhaps it had been made for them that this was their career, this was going to be their life. If they fell in love and married, it would be over. So for some of them it was, I'm going to dedicate myself to this, you know, this career which I love. 
they weren't innocent of the challenges ahead, but, but no one thought the war would last much longer than Christmas 1915. Of course, it didn't. When Harefield Hospital was established, it had 50 beds. The army thought that that would be enough to cope with injured men up until Christmas 1915. Um, At its height, it had more than 800 beds. And for the duration of the war, 50,000 troops were treated at, at that hospital. First of July, 1917, Jessie ran into the storeroom in the ward, pressed herself against a wall and sobbed, great racking, quivering cries that rattled her bones. She slammed her palms against her face to muffle the sound of her tears and squeezed her eyes closed against the stinging. When her legs felt so weak she feared they might buckle, she sank slowly to the floor until her knees were pressed up against her chest. It was all too much. The ward was full of newly arrived boys, all in pieces, as if the powers that be had decided to put them all together to see if a few whole men could be made out of the physical wrecks they were now, like pieces of a puzzle. In each pair of eyes wincing in agony, she saw Bert. The sight of any patient with short red hair and a stocky build sent her quivering with fear, and she'd wanted to unwrap the bandages from each of their faces to see for herself that it wasn't her beloved Bert. And, of course, there's a contrasting character to Cora Barker. There's Jessie Chester. She, I guess, represents the British side of the equation that you explore. There's a strong family connection to Jessie Chester. Tell me about that connection and how you wove that into the story. Yeah, well, um, I based Jessie Chester on the young woman whose letters we found in great my husband, great-uncle Bert's um, war records. Um, she had written numerous letters and uh, the real Jessie Higgins from Birmingham, I could find no trace of. So I wanted to honour her by calling my character Jessie. And I have her, I created her as a, a woman whose world is very small. She's lived in Harefield. She works as a seamstress with her mother. Back in those days, there wasn't so much ready to wear clothing. So people would go to the local seamstress or they would indeed make their own clothes. As more and more women stepped up during the war to do the, the jobs of men because they'd gone off to war they had less time to make their own clothes so Jessie and her mother are seamstresses in in the village Jessie has never even been to London her mother doesn't want her to go to London it's full of vice Um, but the world opens up to her in fact the world comes to Harefield and Jessie's world is broadened and she sees Australians walking past her door and the nurses walking past her door and and all the women from the land army and the factory workers who who are taking up jobs and at the beginning, she's separated by pane of glass. You know, she looks out at that world, but she makes a decision to enter that wider world. And it was just such a pleasure to write her as, a, as an example of the way the village put aside their suspicions and actually embraced the Australians as defenders of their country. And Jessie's letters play quite an important part in the telling of this story too. What do they bring to the story? Well, I've used verbatim all of Jessie Higginson's letters in the book and, and attributed them to my, my tribute character, Jessie Chester. It's really hard to talk about them without giving away too much uh, of the story, and I hate to give spoilers, and I do this to myself all the time. Some of the most fascinating research material I find I can't talk about when I'm talking about the book because it does give things away. But 
looking at her handwriting, for example, it's such beautiful handwriting and the politeness and the courtesy with which she both writes and is treated by the army, who must have been answering tens of thousands of similar letters from people wanting information about what happened to their loved ones, their sons, their fathers, their husbands. Um, that was really poignant to me. The Nurses War is a story from the other end of the war, I suppose. It's about the love and the care and the commitment that these women brought to the experience of war. And I've noticed that the story is peppered with real women too. You've mentioned a few, matron Margaret Graham, matron Ethel Gray, two uh, stalwarts of the nursing profession, but also names like um, Fanny Durack, Annette Kellerman pop up. And are these part of what goes into painting such a convincing picture of that period in Australian history? I wanted to do two things by using those real-life events and those real-life women was to, one, remind modern-day readers, including me, there were these fascinating women who existed back then and we might have forgotten. I mean, I'm very interested in the, the women's place in social history. And so I, I really try to put women back into the history. So much of war history is... Um, is about battles and tactics and strategy. And, and of course, all that's interesting and important, but, but I want to look at the people behind that. So, and that's where the women tended to be. So I wanted them to be real and be fully aware of some of the fantastic women around them. You know, you mentioned Fanny Durack and others. Um, um, they're aware of the suffragettes and what they were fighting for. Um, you can't travel halfway across the world and be naive you know, as to, as to where you're going. and But I, I really wanted to honour some of those women and their place in our feminist and Australian social history about what they've accomplished too. We tend to forget. Victoria Perman, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. I've been talking to Victoria Perman about her new book, The Nurse's War. It's published by HarperCollins and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.